0: Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talaya Dendi. I am a 10-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On The Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. This podcast is about sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who made it on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complementary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Welcome to another episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I am your host. Talea Dendi. Today, our very special guest is Melissa Malanfi. Melissa is very family-oriented and loyal to the core. She spent 20 years in corporate America working for General Re, a reinsurance company owned by Warren Buffett. She traveled the country for work and lived the high life for many years, staying in five-star hotels and riding in limousines to the airport. However, nothing could have prepared Melissa for her mom being diagnosed with cancer. She lost her mom in 2010 to ovarian cancer. It took Melissa over 10 years to tell her story. Not in vain, a promise kept is raw and real, and every part of it is what happened to her mother and her family in the nine-month fight that she ultimately lost. She was very sick. But there were a lot of mistakes. At the end of each chapter, Melissa gives the reader what she learned in that month as a caretaker and what she would do differently. She discusses her grief and self sabotage. Melissa's goal is to help others find their voice so they do not have to suffer or learn the hard way like they had to. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Melissa, you are doing such amazing work educating people about different things to be aware of when they go through the healthcare system. First of all, Melissa, please walk us through what was going through your mind, what you were thinking when you learned about your mother's cancer diagnosis.
1: That's a good question. My mom was diagnosed when she was 68 years old. Believe it or not, the night before we went to the emergency room, she was waiting tables. She waited tables from when I was one until the night before we went to the emergency room at night. My mother was very strong. She was very independent. She was, again, waiting tables at 68 years old. And I never thought she'd get sick because that was the aura my mom had. She was very self-reliant, very independent, very strong. And believe it or not, my dad had congestive heart failure and had got stents like 10 years prior. And he was the one that we worried about, never worried about my mom, thought she'd be around forever. and When she called me and said that she had a distended stomach, I didn't know much about it. And my first thought was she probably had a bowel obstruction, I'm playing a little bit of doctor. And my mom, was from a generation that I learned when reading the book called the silent generation. Some of their, some demographics of this generation is they're not doctor people. They don't like to go to the doctor. They don't like to be considered a burden. And because of that, and just because of who my mom was, unfortunately, she didn't go to doctors unless she really had to. And she had not gone to a gynecologist since she had me and she was diagnosed when I was 39. What I thought when she was diagnosed was, and it's a long story because we, we waited a couple weeks for the diagnosis and you're, you always wanna think things are benign. you're on the internet and you hear the risks, you hear about postmenopausal women and ovarian cancer being the silent killer and all that stuff, but you still try and hold on to hope. And we were holding on to that. When we did go to the emergency room, the doctor took one look at her. And while his word, it's probably benign because I think he saw a very worried family, his nonverbal communication and his face did not say that story. She got a CAT scan with contrast. And when he came back, my dad had arrived at the emergency room and he asked to speak to my parents by themselves. And at that point, like I just got a big pit in my stomach, my God. And they, it wound up being a 23 centimeter mass, which is big. And thinking back, I wondered to myself, I saw my mom all the time. She lived nine miles from my house. I'm saying, how the heck did I miss that? Because ultimately when we saw her in the emergency room, her stomach was so distended. And as with tumors, they're often surrounded by ascites. And she looked about five months pregnant. And I'm saying, how did I miss that? And But my mom always wore like extra large shirts, extra large sweatshirts. She was five foot two. It just, I didn't see it. Nobody saw it. And unfortunately she was staged out at stage three C when we began the fight. And that's common, unfortunately, because with ovarian cancer, a lot of doctors unfortunately misdiagnose it for GERD symptoms, GI symptoms, you get antacids. Some people like my mom self medicate She was eating Tums all the time. If you have UTIs, they treat you for urinary tract infections. It's very common if you read about ovarian that when it is caught, it's very, it's mostly you're staged out either three or four. You're lucky if you get caught in stage one or two because there's no pap smear, there's no mammogram. The only way for someone to diagnose it is If you have symptoms and you have a doctor that listens, a transvaginal can see that. A CAT scan, we had in the emergency room, and there's also a test called CA-125 that is a tumor marker that you can get. But it's very uncommon for a gynecologist to go those routes unless they really feel like there's a risk. I'm involved with a lot of ovarian cancer awareness groups and fundraising groups and alliances just to help women better understand what the symptoms are and not to ignore them. And if I just read a story yesterday and the Today Show that 40-year-old, she started getting symptomatic during COVID. It was hard for her to get appointments. She finally did get an appointment. Her doctor said she was 40 and it's just probably what happens at that age and he blew her off and she got so bad and was in so much pain she went to emergency room and she did have ovarian and she was staged out and ultimately she passed away but it's not uncommon for you to be treated for other stuff and that's why they call it the silent killer it's for women it's for breast cancer a lot of times we've gotten really good at treatment and survivorship with ovarian less than half at the five-year mark
0: Wow. Melissa, you mentioned that you're involved with different groups and different advocacy groups. Are there any talks about changing any testing or trying to implement like the tumor markers or anything like that? Are there any talks to add something besides a pap smear? Believe it or
1: not, the gynecological surgeon that we had, I call her Dr. Z in the book. She was from Iranian descent and Every time we went to her, initially, my sister and I would call her the Grim Reaper because she always seemed to have bad news, but it wasn't bad news. It was she hypothesized and was very honest and straight with us the entire time. But when when you're holding on to the strings of hope, that's not what you want to hear. But looking hindsight, I am so grateful because Everything she said could and would happen, happened. She Mm -hmm. was right on every call. And she wound up leaving the hospital to to go to Northwestern in Chicago to become a researcher because she was phenomenal at her job. And I've actually kept in touch with her. As far as preventative screenings and stuff, to my knowledge, there isn't anything yet. I did read a article, which I blogged about recently, that they have come up with some a blood test and I could after with this call I can get it and send it to you that does show markers in the blood for over 50 cancers that you could possibly get which I was like this is fantastic it's in the early stages now but one of the markers was for ovarian which is great it's in the testing phase now it's in the research phase now but man if we could get that into a life as a standard of care, that would be
0: fantastic. Just think about how many lives that would save, just being able to take this blood test. And even if you don't have any of those types of cancer, at least you can have it on your radar and start to pay attention and make sure that you get certain screenings if they are available, make sure you're getting those done to help catch it if it does happen to become an issue and actually be a form of cancer that someone gets. So thank you so much for sharing that. I personally believe, Melissa, that your book, Not in Vain, is so important. Like Everyone needs to read it, whether they have cancer or not, because you talk a lot about your experience in the healthcare system. When you decided to write this book, Melissa, what was your ultimate goal? A
1: couple things. I can tell you initially when I wanted to write it. I have a master's in psychology and I did not handle her loss good at all. In fact, I start the book with a letter to my mother and I tell her what went on the last 10 years since since she's gone. It, it took me 10 years to really get my message crafted and what I wanted to write and what I wanted to share. And as the years passed, I was able to pull off a lot of the scabs and really be 100% transparent on where I fell down, what I would do differently, what I learned, and what I need to share to as many people as I can, because my goal in writing this book is to help anyone not go through the same pain that my family and my mother ultimately paid the price. Healthcare, to me, is both science and art. And human beings, we're all human. People make mistakes. It's just going to happen. It's It's, it's, there's no way you're going to go through life without making mistakes. And unfortunately with my mom, a lot of mistakes were made and mistakes that were bad that I felt like I needed to tell people. And then, and and I ultimately did after she passed, I wrote to the CEO of the hospital. I I professionally, I wrote them maybe 10 of the top 25 things that happened during my mom's fight because as we know, responsibility starts at the top. And I felt that he needed to know what happened under his watch because I I doubt that he ever gets that information. And I wasn't gonna litigate. I don't know if the mistakes didn't happen, if she would have survived it, I doubt it. But what got me is that a lot of times she unnecessarily suffered. As, As far as why I wrote the book is that I felt like I needed to share my story my mom's story, my family's story, and how we went through the process. Because while my mom was the patient, it was just me, my sister, and my dad. But each one of us served a different role through those eight months. Me, personally, my personality, I was more of the heavy. I was the person that when something didn't go right, figured out and got the answers, and sometimes it's not very nice about it. My sister, she's more conservative. She was great. She took all the notes. She journaled everything. She kept my mom's weight. She knew all the meds, what doctors they were from, what they were there to treat, all the important things that I mentioned in my book that you have to have. Now my dad was at a, in a space and it's just his personality. He doesn't handle stress well at all. And every appointment that my mom had, either my sister or I, or both of us was with her because as you know, working with people that have been diagnosed with cancer, it's very common that they really aren't it's not that they're not listening because they're being rude they a lot of times can't hear it because there's so much anxiety over what they're going through in my mom's case sometimes i think she just went through the treatment and the emotions for us mm-hmm. because i think she knew her mortality that day in the emergency room i think yeah. she had her mind made up and i just think that she went through all of it for us and some person reads my book or reads my blog or see something that I've posted on my website and takes away something for it. Their loved one doesn't have to go through something unnecessarily. They get answers quicker or they don't fall to what I call white coat syndrome. Ask the tough questions and my job is done and I'm happy.
0: Wonderful. And it's so important. You mentioned a lot of important and heavy things in that. And one of them is that your mother was going through that for you all, for her family. And unfortunately, a lot of times people make decisions based on what their family wants for them. And you're right. They do check out when they're going through this whole process, because it's a lot. It's not something that anybody wants to do you're trying to figure out how long are you going to live? How is all of this going to affect me? Then also, I'm quite sure as a mother, she was worried about you all as well. So there is a lot that goes on. And she was very blessed to have you and your sister and your father, because some people, they don't have anyone to go to those appointments with them. And they just suffer. They really suffer.
1: I just went through that with my neighbor. There was welfare check and the person came to the wrong house and I didn't know he was sick and I saw him all the time but I didn't know he was sick and he said that he had fallen to make a long story short he did not have anybody and my husband and I got him in the ambulance and unfortunately he did have an aggressive cancer and lasted about two weeks in the hospital and I went over there every other day before him because again he had nobody and I called his family and I said we better get up here and it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking and this also happened during the time where there's restrictions on visitation because of COVID so not only are you alone because you're suffering and you're dying even if you wanted to have someone there you can't and it's just awful and bad things happen when you don't have visitors
0: so true So true. And I want to commend you for helping your neighbor, because it's so important for us to step in if we can, when other people don't have anyone, because we never know when it might happen to our parent, to us, and nobody's around. And so I just want to commend you for that. Melissa, you have been through a lot, as you've already shared with us. Please tell us what is one of the first things that people should do when they are diagnosed with cancer and if they happen to be admitted to a hospital?
1: There's a lot of things that I've, again, we learned the hard way, but I would say they say that the Internet could be your worst enemy or your best friend. When my mom was first diagnosed. I became obsessed with up all night looking at ovarian survival rates, different treatment methods, et cetera, et cetera. And some of that might not have been healthy, but I can tell you educating yourself on the diagnosis is important. Knowing the vocabulary, knowing the options is important. I also wanted my mom to get a second opinion. She didn't want to get a second opinion. I wanted to bring her to the city. I have 45 minutes from Manhattan and she just liked where she was. And would that have changed things? I don't know. It might've complicated things. I'm not sure. When I started writing the book, I had my mother's entire medical file and I wound up putting every single page in a spreadsheet, every single interaction with every doctor, every diagnosis, every lab, you name it. And I'm not saying that's something someone should do, but I always say that if you are admitted to a hospital or you get a diagnosis, ask for your medical records and the CDs, because especially if you're going to go to another specialist, it saves time. A lot of times, for example, if you get a CAT scan and you get the impression from the radiologist, some doctors, like I know I go to Will Cornell in the city, they don't want the impressions from the doctors where I live. They want their own impressions. They want to look at it themselves. Getting your medical records is critical. And just being open to understanding it. And if you're lucky enough to have somebody in your life that you can bring with you to appointments, do it. Because it's very common that, again, even though you want to listen and you want to be know everything, you, you can't possibly do that. And I don't know about your state, but in New York state, you're allowed to record doctor's appointments Saying record it to get anybody in trouble. I'm saying record it because it's overwhelming. They're saying stuff you don't understand and if you record, say you have an appointment with your surgeon and they're talking about what you need to do to get ready for surgery and you go home and listen to it, you may come back and say, let me make a phone call and talk to the nurse. There's a lot of things that that you don't know. Again, calorie intake. And if we're just talking about cancer, oftentimes with cancer treatment equals wasting disease. And you never see an overweight cancer victim usually. And like one thing I said to the patient advocate at my mom's hospital, the brass is that even though as a family member or advocate, you're not employed by the hospital, if your loved one is there say for a week, two weeks, very ill, and you're there six hours a day, you are not on their staff, but you really are on the treatment team. Because a nurse comes in, usually about once every hour for five minutes, they take vitals, they might give meds and they go out, are you okay? Yeah, you're okay, all right. But they're busy, I get it. But if I'm sitting there, and especially with my mom who had cancer all the way up to a diaphragm with ascite, I have some guilt because we used to always try and get her to eat. Mom, you gotta eat, a little tough love. You know, try this, try that, green drinks, mushrooms, everything she liked, we tried to get her to eat because she was disappearing in front of us. If I sat there all day, And the kitchen services dropped off three trays. I know if the entire day she only drank half a boost. And her doctor should know that information. I could go on forever, like keeping records of your weight. And the doctors generally weigh you, but... Not all the time. That's a big deal. In Mm -hmm. fact, my mom's wasting disease and malnutrition is part of what got her surgery delayed because her protein levels were so low that she was a risk for stroke. So she had to get N for two weeks inpatient. DPN is liquid food in order to get her levels at a place where they could do surgery safely. It's just, there's a lot to it. But again, the more the better. Never feel like you're a burden to the healthcare provider, the nurses, their staff. If you have a question, ask it. And now today with portals, like my mom's generation, she wouldn't be doing any kind of portals and even telehealth. Like I had to do a telehealth appointment with my dad over COVID. And there's no way you could have possibly done it without me coming down there with my phone. But now with it, like I often write to my doctors on a message and ask for stuff or talk about stuff. And I don't feel bad about asking questions. You have to.
0: Yeah. And that's part of their job is to make yeah. sure you're getting the information you need. I also want to piggyback on something that you said, and it's understanding your diagnosis and getting information about what kind of cancer you have. I always recommend to people invest in a good medical dictionary. I know that might sound extreme, but I found that to be very helpful because I didn't have to go to the internet and look through all of those daunting details. I could go right to the medical dictionary if there was a word used in my report or something that I didn't understand. And yeah, the internet's good for some things, but you're also right, Melissa, it can be very overwhelming and you can get addicted to that. So I just like to recommend to people, invest in a medical dictionary. If you're looking over something, you just need a quick answer, but a solid answer, a vetted answer, I think that's a good place to go.
1: That's huge. And at one point, my mom was getting what they call cleanup chemo. And I was at work and my sister texted me and she said it was really bad. It was four days inpatient. And this is where the internet came in really handy. I Googled Asami. That was the the cancer chemotherapy agent they were using for my mom. And when I got to the hospital, I left work. I had a great employer. I left work and my mom had every symptom of toxicity except coma and death and that's how bad she was and i called the oncologist and i said listen it was a holiday weekend i said you need to get here before you leave for the weekend because this is not good and he came over and my mom was on ativan and pain meds and we said this isn't going to be easy we're going for cure and let's keep pushing my mother opened one eye and said okay the next day my cell phone rang about seven o'clock in the morning and i also say this in the book befriend your nurses." because they are the connective tissue to your care. They can make or break your care. My mom was to get her second bag hung. And thankfully, one of the nurses that knew her and knew my family, not outside the hospital, just from being, being there a lot on the oncology floor, she said, Missy, you need to get here because this isn't the Connie that I know. And this nurse stuck her neck out and I got over there. She was having a very bad response to the chemo. And to make a long story short, it was a horrible weekend. My sister and I wound up sleeping there. And on Monday, this was a four-day weekend, Monday night, I was leaning up against the bathroom. The original oncologist walked in that I had told that I thought she was toxic on Friday, came in and said, you were right. She was toxic. Now understand that for those four days when he was gone, three priests had come in the room because that's how bad she was. And at that, I can't even tell you the feelings that I had at that point. And then For two weeks, she was just out of it. She was just in and out of consciousness. She was hallucinating. And so to to get back to the internet, again, it can be good and bad, but I just Googled that. And so when he came in and agreed with me, I had about no patients left. And I told him, I said, listen, I'm in the reinsurance industry. I'm sorry, but this is your job. And my mom lost three weeks of her life. It wasn't that great of a life anyway. But I remember during that period, I called my husband. He was working in the Bronx two times to come home because We thought it was it. It was really bad. There's that saying, trust but verify. That's the thing. And also to trust your gut. Like this nurse knew my mother's disposition. She knew what she looked like when she was well. And she knew that what she was seeing was not good and thank god she made that phone call grateful to her for
0: that wow there's just so many lessons melissa throughout your journey and your mother's journey and i just want to thank you for having the courage to come forward and share what you've learned with everyone and so that will lead me to my next question in addition to your book what are some other things that you're working on to fulfill your goal of patient advocacy A couple
1: things. One thing in the book that I added at the end, at the end of before I got it published was I went back and I start the book with a letter to my mother. And I basically tell her what has gone on for the last 10 years. And with a master's in psychology, my experience working in psychiatric emergency rooms, step down houses, running group therapy, I was terrible at grief. And I was too smart for my own good. And I, as far as like self-sabotage, I should have sought out help a lot sooner than I did, but I thought I was too smart. And that wound up backfiring. I wound up being about 110 pounds, getting size zeros taken in because nothing fit. I just try and tell the reader that I was textbook PTSD, depression, anxiety, grief. And I didn't tell anybody for about a year. In my head, when I was at work, when I was driving, When I was sleeping, I stole my sleep. I kept seeing my mom passing away on the couch. I saw it over and over again. And I never told anybody until a year later when it was really bad. I just want to show my own vulnerability and tell people that it's okay to ask for help, even with a fancy degree that I should have gotten help sooner than I did. Thankfully, I did and I'm not ashamed of it, but I went for eight years. I had a great relationship with my person and I'm not afraid to, I'm not afraid to talk about it. As far as next steps, my ultimate goal is to have the ability to speak to people like you and others and get the message out. Um, I'm trying to get speaking engagements across larger groups. I try and blog at least every day on some kind of emerging issue. And it's not all about cancer. It's goes across the board. I just wrote this morning, today's actually PTSD awareness day. So I just talked about what's going on with our vets and, you know, how everybody is vulnerable to experiencing a trauma or PTSD and, you know, how to understand it and what to do and not to feel like a lot of the military, especially the men feel like they got to just suck it up and you don't have to, You, you can ask for help and you should try and get it. Right now, I, we're going through nursing shortages. The ratios of nurses to patients are dangerous. It's okay to research a facility. If you're going to get some kind of surgery done, you could go online and research people's survey results of a facility. It's just we're in different times now. I tried to make an appointment with my neurologist, and it's three months out before he can see you. That's just how things are going right now. And unfortunately, that's having a very bad impact on people's health. My goal. Ultimate goal, it's always been from day one, is by sharing my story, if it can help one person or a family not go through what my family went through and help them get comfortable being uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. asking the tough questions, pushing back against the system, finding their voice, because again, doctors and nurses are humans and they make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Speaking up, and if I can help someone not go through what we went through... It's a win for me. I can't tell you since the books come out, how many people, even globally that have contacted me and said, and I'm very happy. I went through similar with my family member. You wrote exactly how I felt, but never put into words. I had another person I met on LinkedIn. She's hospital brass. And she wrote me and said, I am going to make my entire network, read your book. I had another lady that's an RN, seasoned RN. She wrote and said, I think this should be required reading in medical school. My goal is not to embarrass, beat up the little professionals. Everybody's name is changed and the facility is not named in the book. It's just more of a call to awareness to know that these things happen. And some of it you're going to have control over and some of it you're not. But the things that you do have control over, please do them because it really could be a matter of life and death. We had situations, this will probably blow your mind. My mom had a cancer causes clots. Yes. She had bilateral pulmonary embolisms in each lung and DVTs behind each knee. My sister noticed it because she was in radiology getting the ascites taken out and she was getting paracentesis. And she had to get that done three times a week. And she noticed my mom's breathing was weird. I happened to see the oncologist in the hallway. I said, please come see my mom. Her breathing is weird. He looked at her. He said, she looks okay, but you know what? Let's admit her into cardiology and we'll get ultrasounds in the morning. I go up to a room. We're up there for a while, and it was a teaching hospital. A student came to my mom's room right before we were leaving. As I'm leaving, I make sure IVs are good, and she doesn't need anything before I go home. I happened to look down at her bracelet. Her name was Constance Burns, and the bracelet had another name on it, another name, another barcode, and I wasn't thinking at the time of any kind of lawsuits or anything like that, I said, but she could have been brought down to get an angiogram at two o'clock in the morning and not even been aware of it. The nurse came in, she caught it off right away. Of course, I told the patient advocate, your meds, your diagnosis, your whole file record is on that barcode. She was usually hypotensive, low blood pressure, What if they gave her a hypertensive med and it Mm -hmm. brought it down to unsafe levels? The book is full of things like this. And again, it's not meant to be a gotcha. It's Mm -hmm. meant to be... These things happen and you really got to keep your eyes open. And especially now when we're at with fatigued, very fatigued and tired and mentally, I would say, checked out in some cases post pandemic workforce, that these things are just going to happen more. It's just critical that you try as best you can to be ahead of
0: it. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And Melissa, please tell the audience where they can find your book.
1: My book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. It's all over the place, but it's also on my website, www.melissamalanfi.com. It's on my Instagram account. It's on my Facebook account. Right now I'm doing a special on Amazon. The e-version is $1.99. If somebody in your audience is interested in the book and they want to consider sending me back a review, and maybe they're an oncologist, maybe they're a professional that that I can learn from, their side of it, I'd be more than happy to send them a book. I have plenty. Again, this isn't to me. It's not about frequency and selling books. To me, it's about the message and how... I can help others.
0: The message is so very important because just of all the things that Melissa shared with us, with her own personal experience and the fact that the healthcare system is very taxed to death right now, there's shortages everywhere. As Melissa shared, it takes three months to get an appointment, sometimes longer. That's happening all over the world, the United States, I'll say that. So that's very common now. And people, quite frankly, could be dying. So it's yeah. good to arm yourself with information before something major happens. That's the other message here. Don't wait until you get that diagnosis or that emergency surgery or anything like that. Start educating yourselves now, and yeah. that will make a big difference. And
1: the one thing, too, that we can do, especially now, to reduce or help our emergency rooms is in January, I went, found myself in an ER and they were triaging me out in the waiting room. And it was because everybody was going to the ER to get tested for Omicron. Now, listen, I'm not going to make judgment. People got to do what they got to do. And that's a, that COVID is just a whole nother, we could talk for another hour about it. But I did blog about this because save going to the emergency room for emergencies. I'm not saying don't go, God forbid you have COVID, but don't go if you're, say, asymptomatic and you, you're getting tested because you need to go back to school or you need to get on an airplane or you want to go to a family party. There's other places you can do that. Pharmacies, the kits the government's supposed to send you, or and now kits, I'm seeing them in the pharmacies. But don't go to an emergency room to do that because they just do not have the capacity. That yeah. that was some arrangement. There were gurneys everywhere. The poor nurses, I felt so bad for them because they were getting yelled at. They, there was nothing they could do about it. There's reasons to go to the ER, and then you've got urgent care. You've got your GP, you've got clinics. Now yeah. you have Walgreens and CVSs that are becoming clinics. Use them.
0: Great point. That goes back to the learning. Learn what's available to you and when when, for what situations to utilize it, because it will only help you out even more if you go to the right place and talk to the right people. And so again, make sure you check out Melissa's book. I will have links to her book, her website, and other information in the listen notes for this episode. Melissa, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing all of the very helpful information, and for being vulnerable in writing your book and sharing your mother's journey and your family's journey as well. Thank you so much, I, Melissa.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate you. You have no idea. I looked at your what you're doing and your mission, and again, I think that our paths cross for a reason. And hopefully we continue to share with each other because I'm, I've just started. That's
0: right. Well, I say we got to stick together in this. Unfortunately, there's so many people out there that need our information and guidance and we can't have enough of us. So sure. I'm proud to share this area, this mission with you. And again, audience, please check out Melissa's book, check out her website. She has a wealth of information and knowledge. She's lived it. I want to give a shout out to the listeners before we end today. Thank you so much for joining us. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it please be sure to subscribe. And if you appreciate the show, drop a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For notes from the show, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. After you check out the show notes, head over to my gift shop and show yourself or someone special in your life some love with gifts of encouragement, hope, and positive affirmations. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.